Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. I'm Ben. On today's New Statesman podcast, Ben Walker, our polling guru, talks about public opinion on the government, COVID restrictions and the cost of living. Right, just to interrupt, before we start the podcast proper, I want to bring in this extra bit of breaking content. So after we had recorded this month's polling update with uh, Ben Walker of Britain Alex and the New States and Data team, there was a rather eventful weekend in polling. So we thought we would get Ben back in to talk about that. So thanks for joining us again, Ben. Happy to be here. Just talk us through, you know, what, what, what we've seen over the last 48 hours, as it were. Yeah, so over the over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you often get a slew of polls, either for the Sunday papers or off their own bat. And we've seen quite quite some sudden shifts in public opinion. Field work happening mostly over the 7th, 8th, 9th and 10th of December. So it's all happening at the same time. And they all seem to be quite instantaneous uh, impulse reactions to the uh, uh, revelations about the Christmas party. Now that we have uh, photo evidence of a party, I can only imagine that this, this issue isn't going to go away. So what we have right now, you have Labour leads, some of the highest since 2014. You have opinion giving a Labour lead, that's the highest since February 2014. And then you have big Labour leads, like eight points, seven points, nine points. It's it's quite quite significant. But I should emphasise, though, fieldwork. It's taken over a free... It's It feels quite impulsive at the moment. If you want to be able to call this a trend, we need to see the same numbers in about a week's time. So I don't want to pour some cold water over Labour activists, but I would just say just just hold your nerve. Yeah, in terms of what we, we, are, we have seen over the weekend... Previous poll shifts towards Labour have been predominantly poll shifts from of Conservatives going, don't know. Uh, and so Labour goes up in percentage terms while staying flat in real terms. Now, one thing which was tended to happen in the past is people who say don't know, um, you know, revert back to, to their previous habit, uh, which is why people get much more excited when they have direct transfers from one party to another. Have we started to see any direct transfers in this week in you know, this weekend's set of polls? In every single poll, normally you have about 3% of Labour voters going Tory and 3% of Tory voters going Labour. Cancel each other out pretty much. And you have that throughout most parliaments. Recently, though, we've started to see something quite quite significant. So in the most recent opinion one, you have about one in 10 voters that voted Tory in 2019 now saying they're going to vote Labour. You also have one in 10 Tory voters from 2019 also saying... 
they're going to vote for the Reform Party. You have basically a Tory base that is well has lost confidence of those who are intending to vote one in ten Labour, one in ten Reform. But then you have about one in four, one in four of the entire base saying they're not sure who they're going to vote whatsoever. Something worth considering. Much of it, yes, is down to Tory voters going undecided rather than Tory voters going to another party. We're still seeing that, but it started to tick up the transfers from Tory to Labour. Again, not sure how set in stone this is. I say wait a week, wait a month, maybe. If this continues, then this is serious. This is quite a sea change. Not, I'm not confident enough to say that now. But something worth bearing in mind is that where this voter uncertainty is coming from is not from the seats the Labour Party lost in 2019. It's coming from the old base, not the new base built by Boris Johnson. It's coming from parts of the South, very safe Tory shire seats, not so-called Red Wall, not, you know, South Yorkshire, Yorkshire Coalfields, the North East. This voter uncertainty is very much seems to be the reserve of its its old base. Thanks. I guess my kind of final question is obviously we have a uh, by-election at the end of the week. And one of the things that we can sometimes use by-elections as a useful sort of temporary check are, you know, are, are the are the national polls about right? And uh, Old Bexley and Sidcup indicated the answer was yes. Assuming that the national polls are about right, what would we expect to see in uh, North Shropshire? It's, it's a, it's a, North Shropshire's a, a bit of an enigma in that it shouldn't be a Lib Dem target. It voted 60% leave. And I, I tend to think that that, that matters. It, if the polls were right, you would be looking at a Tory old, we're, we're you know, down 15 points at the last election. That's what, if, 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 if listeners go to uh, Britain Predicts, which is on the New Statesman website, you'll be able to find yourself what, what, what the model thinks for North Shropshire and is Tory hold. That's what we're expecting. I'd still, I, I sort of buy that in that I think, yeah, it's a leave seat. I think that still matters to a lot of voters. I think that leave voting identity is still strong. I think the Lib Dems have burnt their bridges. You can see that in the fact they made no gains in Cornwall earlier this year. I, I really still think that matters. I, um, it's, but I think if it if 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 taken in isolation, Sleaze, uh, Boris Johnson's own personality, the notion that voters can deal a blow to Boris Johnson personally by voting for the anti-Tory party, the Lib Dems, or Labour, if you believe in some of the internally <laughs> nonsense polling leaked, I think I think voters might 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 do it, but I just think it's much less likely than Cheshire and Amersham, and much less likely than. Old Bexley and Sitcup, which to tell you the truth, I thought that was more of a, you know, a light, likely, I thought that would have been more trouble for uh, the Tories than North Shropshire. Right, back to the podcast. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. And I think we're going to make this a regular feature, aren't we? We're going to hear from you each month on the latest in polling. I'm so sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot to get stuck into in terms of public opinion today. Why don't we start with the obvious? How are the public feeling about the government after this terrible few weeks, actually, of scandal that they've had, particularly over the alleged Christmas party? Oh, Christ. Um, well, how long has it been happening? Over a month now? Yeah. More than a month? Just just every week you have had some form of story relating to sleaze come up, whether it be about a minister, faceless, nameless in the eyes of most, uh, most much of the public, or indeed about the prime minister, which is slightly more serious. At the start, there was just gen enough takes from enough people that it's not going to matter in the red wall, so-called. <laughs> it's not going to matter across the country, when in reality, well, you know what, <laughs> it does actually. And what we've seen, let's, let's just look at the headline voting intention numbers, right? So about a month, 
two months ago, you had the Conservatives about five, six, seven points ahead of Labour. That was partly a consequence of Labour's base not entirely being enthusiastic, the Tories being pretty enthused. Now we're sort of seeing the polar opposite. Right now, the polls are neck and neck. Uh, according to our own poll tracker, it's literally uh, 0.1 point difference, <laughs> basically, between Labour and the Conservatives. And the reason for that, basically, is Tory voters who voted Tory in 2019, I said it in the previous podcast, they just aren't sure who they're sticking with now. They just There's no confidence amongst them to stick with the Tories. They're not moving to Labour. Then hardly any of them are moving to Labour. About 3% of those that voted Tory in 2019 say they are uh, backing the Labour Party, which is nothing compared to the number of 2005 Labour voters who said they were going to back David Cameron's Tory party in 2010. Mm -hmm. So really, there's not much vote transfers going on on the top. What's just happening is that the Tory base is very unenthused by this. They're not keen about uh, voting Conservative. They're not keen about voting Boris Johnson. Uh, but but Labour's not exactly benefiting from that. They're gaining by default, basically. That, that's so interesting, Ben, because I, this is why it's great that we'll, we'll be having you on every month because I wanted to ask you about this after the last one where, you know, the last time we spoke, Labour and the Tories were roughly neck and neck. But you were explaining that that is, be, you know, as, as you say, because of a t- collapse in Tory support, particularly among 2019 Conservative voters. So the proportion of don't knows is going up and that's what's driving the shift. But it's fascinating to me that, you know, there's a there was there was a snap poll giving Labour a four point lead. We're recording on um on Thursday, the 9th of December. This will come out a little bit later. But, you know, there was a snap poll last night indicating a Labour lead. It's so interesting that that is still not really driven by actually people switching support to Labour. I think people will find that you know, fascinating. Absolutely. And 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 Labour strategists should not in any way be complacent or even happy about this. The four-point Labour lead, it's good. It's the biggest the pollster Redfield and Wilton has ever done. Not the biggest we've seen so far. Comres had a six-point Labour lead, but that was a bit of a bit of an outlier there. But again, it's just driven by, as you as you say, as I've said, as, as everyone's now saying, really, 2019 Tory voters just saying they're undecided. But it's a big jump. So uh Redfield and Wilton on Monday showed around about 10 to 15% of the Tory base unsure. Now that's up to 25%. So one in four people that backed the Tories in 2019, they just don't want, they're not keen about it anymore. So we'll talk about the sort of ups and downs of snap polling in the next section. But there was also a snap poll, I think you might have seen, Ben, from Comres, that a majority of people think Boris Johnson should resign over this Christmas party story. What do you make of that? Oh, yeah. So... Think about snap polling. We've had one of those questions, didn't we, about what, what people thought of snap polling mm. uh, on, on Twitter. Basically, when you look at snap polling, four-point Labour lead recently, as you say, 50, 60-something <laughs> percent of people say uh, they want they want Johnson to resign. Always bear in mind that snap polling is instinctive. It's, it's sudden. It's snap. <laughs> well, that is what it says. <laughs> it, it's basically people giving, uh, what would I say, an erratic response? Not erratic. Impulsive. Well, Yes, that's the word. Sorry. Yeah, an, an, an impulse decision, basically. And impulse decisions aren't often what you do in, in the ballot, in the polling station, because you have hours and time to think about that. Right. So here's, here's another example. Rewind back to the days after the EU referendum of 2016. Right. And in the immediate day after, a Scottish paper commissioned a pretty unknown market research firm to survey on Scottish independence. And it was 60-40 yes. 
right? 60% of Scots wanted Scotland to be independent in the immediate aftermath of the EU referendum. A few days later, he had Salvation ask it, and it was 55-45 yes. A month later after that, it was 55-45 no. But what, what, what we're sort of seeing with snap polling, yes, as you say, impulse decisions, it's not often re- re- representative of what you're thinking long term, but it's a nice indication of what people are thinking in isolation, if that makes sense. So um, if Bre- for, for Scotland, if Brexit was taken in isolation, Scots wouldn't be happy about it. They would want to vote for independence. But when they, when, they, when they take time to think, they're less sure. So I think whilst obviously you have 60-something percent saying Boris Johnson should resign, I would say the number, the actual number is a bit lower than that in the weeks and months to come, will be lower in the weeks and months to come. Okay, and obviously some new COVID restrictions have been announced recently. How is the public feeling in terms of compliance? What we saw over the summer months was the number of Brits concerned with the pandemic go lower and lower. It's the lowest it's ever been. right? And the, the number of Brits concerned with the economy, with prices, with getting back to normal, rise and rise over time. And so the country is determined, is, is desperate to get back to normal. And so all announcements of new restrictions aren't being met favourably. The public don't really want that. But, but the impression is they're sort of willing to wear it. At the moment, as many Brits are scared of catching the coronavirus as there were just days before the first lockdown of March 2020. That's pretty big. That's pretty significant. What we sort of, the indication there basically is the public just need to be led on it. They kind of need to be told there's a pandemic on. They kind of need to be reminded uh, they've got to do their bit right? And then they will do it. Otherwise, they won't. And, and the impression I get here is that government messaging just needs to sharpen itself, just needs to keep warning the public. They they, they spent the past few months, what, saying the good times are here and the, the, there's nothing to worry about. And now they're just, they sort of just jump on you with new restrictions without much prior warning, not not really much prior warning. And, and the public, while they will be compliant, they're not idiots. They are less enthused about them than they've ever been. I would say. And Ben, um, what about how the smaller parties are getting on? We've, we had a, a by-election last week and there's another bigger by-election coming up in North Shropshire. How, and I suppose the Liberal Democrats are, are hoping they might be able to clinch a victory there with this sort of collapse in confidence in the Conservatives. How are they doing? How, how is that comparing with the Greens and so on? Mm, so nationally, um, the Greens are doing okay. So... You had the COP26 conference, and it's fair to say that that conference did help the green numbers. So the greens peaked at the start of November at 8% in our poll tracker. They're now sitting closer to 6%, a bit of a drift downwards. They were once overtaking the Liberal Democrats in some polls. Now they are not in most by YouGov. If you only pay attention to YouGov, the Greens are ahead. If you pay attention to all pollsters, uh, the Greens are quite behind. In terms of by-elections, we... uh, Old Bexley and Sidcup, 10 point or 11 point swing to Labour. That was mostly down as as what we saw in national polls. Tory vote is staying at home. Labour's base not really moving anywhere. And so Labour gains by default. Nothing really happened there. But it was a good it was a good instance of basically Liberal, Democrat and Green voters going for the best opposition to the Conservatives. It was quite effective, wasn't it? You're seeing sort of some, uh, I wouldn't say progressive alliance because it's not really a progressive alliance but it is kind of like voters know who to vote for 
In North Shropshire, however, you have the sort of the water's been a bit muddied, hasn't it? You have Labour Labour campaigns now now sort of saying we're second and we're, we're in the running. They were briefing once, weren't they? One of the one of the campaigners at least were briefing poll numbers which had them in second. Whilst Liberal Democrat campaign on the ground is, is very bullish about their chances. But just bear in mind about North Shropshire. Whilst obviously there will be a backlash to the sleaze of Owen Paterson and generally the sleaze of the Conservative Party and the Prime Minister, but always remember North Shropshire voted leave quite heavily and is very rural. It's quite socially conservative in terms of its attitudes. It's not, you know, fertile ground for the Liberal Democrats per se, but there will be a backlash nonetheless. I, my, my inkling at the moment really is that whilst the Lib Dems are going to definitely gain and they probably will come second, I just wouldn't be sure they win it by, by virtue of it being a leave seat. And that still matters in the eyes, in, in the minds of most voters. That's so interesting. And before we move on to our second section, Ben, I don't know if you saw the news that the cost of a Christmas dinner has jumped 3%. Um, and I know you spoke about the cost of living and how that will uh, feature in voters' minds in your very good video about whether or not the Prime Minister could survive a Christmas lockdown. Are the public feeling pinched? Yes, I, this is one of those things where we've, um, you know, normally public opinion rarely changes about the fundamentals of who's the best party on the economy. It's always the Conservatives. Well, since 2013, at least. And um, that kind of stuff. We're now seeing change on some things. Firstly, what do the public rank as important to what the economy is? So, uh, you know, normally you you've been in this job far longer than i have and since since time immemorial the economy has always been twinned with debt <laughs> and deficit right yeah <laughs> so, uh, it's it's always been twinned with debt I and deficit i remember when christmas dinner was 50p <laughs> <laughs> oh i i wasn't presuming your age that i don't really know how old you are anyway but uh, <laughs> I, I i'm only i'm only at the tender age of 26 but i'm one of, i'm one of those nerds who who remembers the bud- the omni shambles budget of 2012 and, okay, we'll, um, we'll leave it at it, that. <laughs> yeah, no, <I'm> joking. <laughs> yeah. So the economy generally is seen as, uh, in the eyes of voters, when the, when the voters think of the economy, they think of debts, deficit, the issues on which the Conservatives reign supreme, right? And cost of living, though the slogan "cost of living crisis" did play a lot with voters, it wasn't often the key uh, theme of the economy. Now we're seeing that change. Voters, when they think of the economy, they think of house prices, cost of living, they think of inflation. And um, people are feeling the pinch. You're having, I call it one YouGov poll a few weeks ago, um, had the, the vast majority of people noticing price rises in their shops. They were noticing they were having to spend more. They were noticing they were having to fork out more for general day-to-day things and events. And when you have a public which spends less time thinking about debt and deficit, the issues of which the Conservatives are dominant, and more time thinking about their general personal household budgets, you're going to have a country that is not so sure about the Conservatives being the best party to handle the economy. What my take from that, therefore, is, is you, you in the next few months, we know prices are going to rise big time next few months. We know wages are going to, the pinch from, from wages is going to start to be felt. I, I really think there's sort of like an, an opening for, the, for, for Labour here on the economy because the public no longer view it through the Conservative lens anymore. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've got... So we've got a number of interesting questions. We've got three for you, Ben, if you don't mind. The first one we already touched on in part one, but how useful is snap polling, really? You were mentioning that often that represents a bit more of an impulsive decision on the part of voters and it maybe is slightly inflated um, but is there is there a value in it given that potential inflation yeah and it sort of tell you the direction of public opinion the direction of what people are most vexed by you know um so you have certain debates you have a snap poll after a debate who won it what kind of messages resonated well And you can use those messages in your campaigns in the weeks and months later, but don't take them as good as the public's final decision. It is kind of just like testing the water. It's kind of just like a test of what is their instinctive view? What is is their, as you you say yourself, the impulse view? It's not a long-term thing. You know, what we saw with the Redfield and Wilter poll in the immediate aftermath of Wednesday, the chaos of Wednesday, that was a Tory party, a Tory base that had lost confidence in its prime minister. That's not a good sign, but it wasn't a sign of voters turning to Labour. So really not good news for the Conservatives with these snap polls, but don't take it as good that we're going to be seeing four-point Labour leads in the weeks and months to come. We've got to wait for those four-point Labour leads in the weeks and months to come as to whether they happen, I don't really know. Thanks. And um, on Scottish independence, we have a question. What's going on with the polls swaying from one side to another um, in what they call an annual slow roller coaster? And what do you make of the demographic time bomb where unionists are older and separatists are younger? Mm, yeah. So on Scottish independence, we saw from about just from the aftermath of the referendum in 2014 through to the end of 2019, pretty unshaken leads for no. More Scots were uh, keen on their country remaining part of the UK than not. Now, three things, however, in recent time have caused that change near the end of 2019 throughout much of 2020. We are now seeing, not in all polls, but some polls, leads for yes. And three things have sort of triggered that that upswing for yes. One, Brexit. Two, COVID-19. And three, Nicola Sturgeon. So one... Brexit. Brexit happened. And um, snap polling I alluded to earlier indicates taken in isolation. It can be the issue that sets Scots on a course for independence. It's the equivalent bogeyman issue that the Leave campaign had in 2016. The Leave campaign had immigration. The Scottish independence campaign has Brexit. But then you have to bear in mind, will Brexit play a part in the next referendum to come? We don't really know that yet. So in 2019, what we saw was that more Scots, the more Scots and Scottish media outlets talked about Brexit, the less unionists were certain of their voting intention. Point number two, COVID-19 happened. Scots generally saw their government as handling the crisis better than the powers that be in Westminster, even on the occasions when the policies were virtually identical. And three, Nicola Sturgeon. 
She is poles apart from Boris Johnson in terms of presentation and perceived ability. And she was to a lot of voters the image of what an independent Scotland could be. And as a consequence of those three things throughout much of 2020, yes, had leads in the polls. Unionists, those who backed no in 2014, declared higher than average levels of uncertainty to pollsters. And so, yes, were in part leading by default. They were also gaining people who voted no in 2014, but remain in 2016. But generally, it was just unionists losing their enthusiasm because Nicola Sturgeon is, is, is a great communicator. She, she, she's, she's got an excellent image. She, she, she does, to a lot of Scots, give the vision of this is what an independent Scotland could look like. Until the chaos of the first few months of this year when she, over the Alex Salmond affair, that it was then that image began to become damaged. Uh, you saw across the whole of the UK, Brits generally holding less favourable views of Nicola Sturgeon than normal, because normally the English quite like Sturgeon. I don't know if you remember in 2015, she was one of the best performing debaters of that, 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 that well, what were the big debates? The ones with the, the four main parties, five main parties, and then the, the nationalist parties from Scotland and Wales, and she was one of the best performers, and she's quite liked in England. But in after the chaos of the Alex Salmond affair, she started to fall down. So at the moment, you're seeing swings, and I apologise that this, this question, this answer is slightly longer than that, but the three main drivers of independence at the moment has been COVID, Brexit, and Sturgeon. Whether they hang around, we don't really know, because COVID's going to go away. The perceived effectiveness of the Scottish government that's going to last forever. Brexit is an issue. That's not going to stay in the minds of the Scottish public forever. It, it, does, the Scot, does the Scottish independence campaign have a bogeyman similar to immigration was the leave campaign? Not yet. We don't really know. You know, blood and soil Scottish nationalism. It's not enough. It's not enough to get you over 50% plus one. Nicola Sturgeon, while, whilst ha- has had a reputation damaged, but she's, she's not going to go on and on, is she? It's, um, so I really say, I don't, are we the demographic time bomb? Unionists are older, separatists are younger. Don't bank on that. Opinions change. That's so interesting, Ben. We have a final question, which I don't think was sent in by our own Stephen Bush, but it could have been because this is one of his favourite topics. Um, so what is the correlation historically between leader favourability ratings and margins of wins? Mm. Okay, now this is this is the very wonky question, and I thank Stephen for sending it in. <laughs> and this is I had to get my books out for this because this is actually something you have to look at quite historically. So the general argument is that if your leader is popular or or more popular than the opposition leader, you're going to win. So here, here's here's some examples. Right, 2015, David Cameron was unpopular. More Brits disliked him than liked him, but he was more popular than Ed Miliband because Ed Miliband was 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 at the bottom of the pile, but David Cameron was just a little bit higher. They both they both they both they were both smelling of excrement basically, but they were, but David Cameron wasn't as much, right? <laughs> You've seen that in history. I do apologize. I I, I thought I've, I brought the New Statesman podcast to the gutter, haven't I? <laughs> Quite literally, I apologize. But in history, we've seen that as well. 1987, Margaret Thatcher, she was, despite being seen as, you know, Iron Lady, great image, all the rest of it, about 60%, she had 60-40 disapproval, 60% of the public didn't like her. The thing going for her, though, was Neil Kinnock, 70-30 disliked him. It, he, he was like a 10-point difference there. And, and in terms of preference for Prime Minister, uh, Mrs. Thatcher always came away miles ahead of Mr. Kinnock there. The same with Cameron and Brown. Cameron had better perceived prime ministerial qualities than Gordon Brown. And we 
When it comes to Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, though, we have two issues where they are both unpopular in that, like David Cameron and Ed Biliband, but you have Boris Johnson ahead on preferred prime minister. In terms of net favourability, Starmer's ahead, so that the gap between popular and unpopular is narrower than the gap between unpopular and popular for Boris Johnson. But uh, Boris Johnson leads on on preferred prime minister. The thing that is going and also not going for Keir Starmer is that three in 10 don't have an opinion of him. Right. That it was one in 10 for Jeremy Corbyn. It was one in 10 for Ed Miliband. It was three in 10 for David Cameron. You know, at this point in his leadership, not many people had an opinion of David Cameron until Gordon Brown bottled the uh, snap election of 08. Right. And so is that what explains that discrepancy then between the preferred prime minister ratings versus their net favorability? Because otherwise, yeah. I, I think that wouldn't make much sense to people. Yeah, I, I would answer yeah to, yes to that. The, the simple the simple fact is, is that Keir Starmer hasn't had much of an impact with the public at the moment. And so he is not seen as prime ministerial material yet. David Cameron, ditto, I would say. And going right back to the 1970s, in 1979, James Callan always led on the public's preference for prime minister. Margaret Thatcher didn't, partly because Margaret Thatcher was a bit of a, a bit of a misnomer in the eyes of much of the public. She wasn't exactly a love-hate figure in 1979. Public weren't sure of what to think of her. And, and so, but that didn't matter, did it? Because the Labour Party's image was in tatters in 1979 and the public were looking for change. You know, that... that I'm sort of confusing matters here just a little bit, aren't I, with, with 1979. But I think you get the general gist is that that lead, leadership favorability ratings, they they are they're absolutely they're more key sometimes than party voting intention. Great. Thank you. That that was really interesting. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks for coming on again. Happy to help. And don't forget that you can send in any questions that you have for Ben or for us for the You Ask Us at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or you can tweet us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Ben Walker. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.